0: Hello readers, my name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Michael Parker. He is the author of seven previous novels and three collections of stories and is the recipient three O. Henry Awards for Short Fiction and the 2020 Thomas Wolfe Prize. His last novel, Prairie Fever, was the best book of 2019 and was nominated for a Carnegie Medal. His new book is I Am the Light of This World, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here, Michael. And first of all, um, let me just state up front, if you are not nominated uh, for a Pulitzer for this book, it will be a crying shame. And um, I mean, what a gut punch of a novel this is. And my God, also hilarious, charming, alarming, all of the things that you want a book to be. Uh, I'm going to start on the outside covers and work my way in First, I want to ask you about two people who are noted in your book, either through a blurb or through acknowledgments. Uh, What do Randall Keenan and Chris Stamey mean to you? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for those
1: um, really wonderful words. and I I hope that you can be on the committee for the Pulitzer. That would be terrific. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so, too. (laughs) Um, So Randall Keenan, I knew Randall. I met Randall Keenan when I was 20 years old, and Mm -hmm. we come from. I'm from Clinton, North Carolina, and he's from Chincapin, and they're about 20 miles apart. So Mm -hmm. I did not know him when I was in high school, despite the fact that we grew up so close to each other. But we were uh, both at Chapel Hill at the same time, and we were actually in a in a writing workshop taught by Max Steele, who's sort of legendary um, teacher writer. And Lewis Rubin, who started Algonquin Books, he had not started at them, he started it a few years later. Um, and and you know, I, I didn't see Randall for a long time because he moved to New York. But then when he came back to North Carolina, I would see him from time to time and we would hang out. And um, Randall once said, we were talking and somebody came up and um, Randall said about me, Michael and I come from contiguous swamps. Mm.
0: <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's
1: true we come up from, we, we're everywhere i mean everywhere around where we live is either underwater or you know a tobacco field so um mm-hmm. chris stamey was a copy editor for this book and i did oh, not nice. know that at first and then i learned that he was a copy editor and i mean i'm a serious hardcore um db's fan mm-hmm. and um so and i grew up listening to them and um And I was hugely intimidated because his book, as you know, has a lot of music in it. And so I was thinking, oh, my God, what if I got the words to she's not there wrong? And, Mm -hmm. you know, if I embarrass myself, but he was actually really great. And one of the great things about working with him is that he um, because he's from North Carolina, um, he's from the South. He has some sense of um, the idiom, Mm -hmm. which, you know, often write, And um, he's not forever correcting you know um certain grammatical things um as some you know I had a um a copy editor from Maine once, and she said to me, finally, this is like a different language i don't <laughs> I don't really know how to do with this, although she was one of the best copy editors I've ever had. she's terrific, but but yeah, that's how i I don't really know Chris I mean, I just know him through our work together, but he was so great. I just had to thank him.
0: That's fantastic, thank you, Michael um I love Randall. I had the opportunity to interview him for this program right before he passed away, and it's an opportunity I will forever be uh, grateful for. And Chris Stamey has been a guest of the North Carolina Book Festival when it was under my watch, along with you more than once. I think the two of you were probably on the same lineup um, at least one time. So that's fantastic uh, to learn about that. Well, let's now dive into this novel properly, Michael. Um, The story in this novel opens in 1973 uh, in Stovall, Texas. The first line of the book is, "quote Because Earl's clothes were line dried, they smelled of sun, grass, earth." End quote. And Michael, I'm hoping that you can set up this novel for our listeners with this first line in the context of Earl's later nickname, which is Clothesline.
1: Well, first of all, I've never thought about the t- <laughs> I never, until you pointed that out, I've never actually um, noticed that that, um, that that was the case. I mean, I re- really was, you know, I was trying to get, especially with the, um, later he says that in the winter, his clothes already smelled of kerosene, kerosene so I was trying to establish this, this sort of milieu that he comes from, mm-hmm. uh, which is very working class and, and rural um, Texas, right up. Um, East Texas, right up on the Louisiana border. Um, and, you know, so I didn't actually think about the clothesline thing, but the clothesline thing comes later because he's, um, I guess uh, this guy he's hanging out with gives him a nickname um, just because he can hang, he can hang with the party. And mm-hmm. um, so, uh, and it comes back to haunt him a little bit because he, he hangs with the party a little too long. Um mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't I haven't thought about the the relationship between those two things.
0: Yeah, I'm sure your your subconscious mind was working on it, Michael, at some uh, at some level. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, when we were talking about Chris Stamey uh, Earl, our protagonist in this novel, um, he's obsessed with music. In the beginning of the novel, here he's obsessed with a biography about Lead Belly. Um, and then he later becomes uh, really obsessed with the slide guitar and other songs but um, first Michael what is the nature of Earl's love for music and does he know the music of Lead Belly or just the biography of Lead Belly?
1: I think he knows a little bit about the music but you know probably um, as played by other people um, you know Night Irene was a a really hugely covered song and still is. Um, and actually, I think Nirvana covered Lead Belly. Everybody covers Lead Belly, but I mm. think he was just obsessed with the book because it's a, a book that he found and it really spoke to him. Mm. Uh, and also, Lead Belly is from Morrisport, um, Louisiana, which is only about 25 miles from where the book takes place, which is right across the line from Shreveport. And he's his. his people, as he calls them. His family are, are from um, um Bozier City, which is just uh, sort of right next. it's like a you know, Durham Chapel, I mean, a Carborough Chapel Hill thing, like they're one city, but there's a line between them. So mm-hmm. um, I think he becomes obsessed with that book because we, f- I mean, I was obsessed with this book about Jim Thorpe when I was a kid and used to mm-hmm. carry it around because, you know, it was a book that I read and I really was like, a, a, just amazed by his story. And, um, and you know, we have these books that was, that speak to us when we're young and we read them over and over and over again. So that was a book for him.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Michael. I thought it was interesting, by the way, that two of the songs that play a large role in this novel, um, a Lead Belly song and a uh, Zombies song, um, cover versions of these songs are what come to my mind first nirvana for me covering um lead belly where do you sleep last night as nirvana calls it and santana covering the zombies um she's not there on their excellent album moonflower uh, are you a musician michael
1: i'm a failed musician I and mean, I, I pick out the guitar and i have for a while i just bought a new guitar but um no i'm really not and in fact I mean, I love music, and I listen to it constantly, and I have way too many records. That some mm-hmm. way more records than someone should own. As as every time I move, people point out to me. Um, oh, and yeah. I still have the vinyl that as as the young people got. I still have the records that um, I bought when I was Earl's age and in the early '70s. You know, I have all my Stones records, and um, you know, and and everything else from that era. I just I kept I kept it, which a lot of people just got rid of that stuff. But, you know, for me, music and language are so intertwined. So, you know, when I, when someone asks me if I'm a musician, I mean, I'm not technically, but I'm trying to do with language and with syntax and with sentence rhythm, what musicians do with sound. And I think, you know, in a good work of art, the the sound of the prose is, um, indecipherable from from the character and from the character's desires and from the real story that's um, that's taking place so you know in that sense I think I I am a kind of musician it's just that my chosen you know instrument is a black wing pencil and <laughs> I'm not a Gibson guitar
0: yeah right on um is uh, the guitar you bought a Gibson guitar
1: no it's no it's a, <laughs> yeah. no it's a it's a pawn shop guitar.
0: Oh, okay there you I don't go think
1: I deserve a gibson
0: i think you ah, have to better. everybody deserves a gibson play that pawn shot guitar for a while and then go grab one that's what i say um good <laughs> well, very good michael yeah yeah for sure um well um moving on earl uh in this novel he meets a girl tina um what makes a guy like earl susceptible to a girl like Tina. Tina is not who Earl thinks she is, but she does seem to bring out the best of Earl, as far as Earl is concerned at least. So what makes a guy like Earl fall for a girl like Tina?
1: That's a good question. I think at Earl's age, what is he, roughly 16 or 17 when he meets her? I mean, you know, why we fall for whom we fall for when we're teenagers is its kind of a mystery. I mean, Mm I know I certainly fell for the wrong people and they fell for the wrong people when they were with me. But um, I also think she's very unpredictable, you know, even though she's, um, in some ways she's very conventional. She's also, she has a separate, alternate story for herself. Mm -hmm. And it is not true. And Mm -hmm. she knows it's not true, but she's able to spin it with such detail that he's convinced that it's true. And he is a kind of, I mean, the the book was originally called also elsewhere because of his um, kind of dual consciousness, right? In the way in which he's present and also not present, and what Tina allows him to do because of her um, because of her own personality is like be present and not be present, so that he can be thinking about things that she said or things that he's interested in and be with her at the same time and not get flack about it, right? Because most people, I think when you get to a certain age, um, they want you to be present. You need to be, you need to show up for them. And Tina doesn't care really, you know? Um, She just wants to talk about, you know, ZZ Top. Mm -hmm. And her friend that's, you know, going out with a roadie. And if he's listening, fine. If he's not listening, that's fine too. And, um, and then she's, She's fairly interesting in the way she's, you know, when he asks her at one point, what are you scared of? And she says school nurses and cuckoo clocks. I mean, that's not to him terribly original, but it's also not, you know, as he says, it's not cave crickets and speedonking You know, it's right. not it's not so cliched that you would have that he would have um, predicted it.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, And speaking of Tina and going back to music a bit, Tina tells Earl that he is a very staccato driver. Um, mm-hmm. Why does this descriptor enliven Earl? Staccato is a very interesting word.
1: Um, I think he, well, first of all, he doesn't have a driver's license. So he just, <laughs> I mean, he's just flattered that anyone says anything about his driving because I mean, he, you know, where I grew up, you didn't really need, I mean, you should have had a driver's license, technically. But people started driving Mm -hmm. when they were 14 or 15, and, you know, they learned how to drive tractors and farm trucks, and then they just took it to the road. And so um, Mm -hmm. he doesn't really think he needs a license, which comes back to haunt him. But um, also, he feels like it's a very um, lofty way of describing his driving. But actually, what she means is that he's riding the brakes. So Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. not really a compliment. It's, It's just that he thinks it sounds... You know, grand, and um, so you guys with it,
0: yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Um, Earl is good at turnstiles, and I mean, according to Earl, he is really good at turnstiles. What does it mean, Michael, to be good at turnstiles?
1: So, Earl is a very Id- idiosyncratic guy, and really, I mean, we're wh- the thing about him is that where would he have ever encountered a turnstile mm-hmm. growing up where you you know in in rural Texas mm-hmm. so I mean he imagines he reads these things and he imagines himself to be someone other than who he is which is what fiction is for that's what music is for it's what art is for and he sort of latches onto these things and he's not and he's also not good at the traditional things that boys should be good at you know growing up where he grows up hunting fishing you know he likes to swim he really likes to swim he really wants to learn how to swim properly and and Mm. in fact he does you know and that's one of the things that that i think is a wonderful thing that you know helps him in in later years Mm. um but yeah i don't know if he, he even knows what it means to be good at turnstiles he's just. That's a thing that nobody else is good at, so. Um.
0: Yeah, so might as well run with it then. Well, very good, Michael. Thank you so much. Um, listeners, after the break, uh, there are going to be spoilers because there's really no way to talk around uh, a turn that this novel takes without spoiling it somewhat. So as we head into the break, be warned, Uh, pause the podcast when the music starts and come back to us when you have read I am the light of this world and now we will pause for a word from our sponsor and then I will be right back with Michael Parker the book and podcast is sponsored by Libro FM audiobooks Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore well Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter BOOKIN, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Michael Parker, author. I am the light of this world, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Michael, um, of note, you mentioned that another title of this book earlier was also elsewhere, and then it was changed to I am the light of this world. Uh, what does the word world mean to you? I ask because you have written books titled The Watery Part of the World, All I Have in This World, and Now I Am the Light of This World.
1: Yeah, it's becoming a bit of a habit, I guess. I mean, I guess I like to think that I'm worldly and that's why I keep using it. I mean, I I actually am not using it in the sense that people use it when they mean worldly. I think think I'm interested in the world that people inhabit, which is interior and exterior and the ways in which we create our own version of that world. And um, so I think all my characters in, in those three books are sort of straddling as as early as being a part of uh, society and culture and also being really apart apart from it Mm -hmm. um so in that way the world is not like global necessarily it's just the world that we create the world of our mind the world of our senses and the world that we move through
0: Mm -hmm. yeah thank you michael um You talk a lot or you write a lot about sexuality in this novel, uh, partly because of the relationship between Earl and Tina, who we later know as Adelaide, and partly because of the relationship between this guy, Tom, and Earl. Uh, Tom, who is a much older drug dealer who drugs and rapes Tina and probably Earl, though the lines are a bit blurry there. how was sexuality or the perception of sexuality different in Texas in 1973 versus in Oregon in 2018, where the latter half of this novel takes place?
1: I would say it's black and white night and day. I mean, you know, Earl was not raised to think that he could be anything other than straight or gay. And mm-hmm. the, the, the idea that he could be, both or in between, and that he could enjoy some of the things he did with Tom sexually and love having sex with Tina is just very confusing to him. And, um, and then when he gets out and he finds that sexuality all of a sudden has become fluid, and that, you know, it's no longer defined so strictly, and that you could be a lot of different things, and that it was much more accepted, at least, you know, in certain parts of the world especially in Oregon, maybe. I, I don't think it would have been the same if he was back in Stovall, Texas, But um, as he points out. But, you know, I mean, I think it's, after having been in prison for so long, where obviously, you know, any kind of sexuality is to be um, squelched if if you uh, are a certain orientation. Um, you know, it's his mind, my, it blows his mind way that things have changed just like the fact that you know he's he's hanging out with this guy and this guy goes to a dispensary and buys some weed you know whereas when in 1973 you know rocky erickson here in austin went to jail for two joints and spent two years in jail i mean people and and texas was particularly um harsh about sentencing for drugs i mean texas is particularly harsh at that time and, and still somewhat today about sentencing anyway right mm. um generally you can get more time down here for anything especially if you're black brown or a poor white person so mm. um so yeah i mean it was absolutely you know the difference between night and day i mean that's the only way i know how to put it
0: yeah yeah and um you know you're As I'm talking to you here in in Aspen, Colorado, if I walk outside of the bookstore in a two block radius, there's probably 20 marijuana shops. Um, And, you know, next week there will probably be more. It's just crazy how um, perceptions of such things differ from place to place and time to time. Uh, Similarly, I want to talk about racism. You write something interesting in this novel, which is comparing 1970s Texas in 2018, Oregon, and the perception of racism in both of these places. Most of my in-laws live in Portland, in the outskirts of Portland, so I'm fairly um, familiar with Oregon. Uh, how does racism or the perception of racism differ in these times and places, or does it?
1: Well, I think it's huge in Stovall where I grew up. I mean, they're not um, there's not a lot of attention paid to Race necessarily, um until he gets to prison, in which you know there's a lot of I mean there's some mention of um, of brown people um, you know and um, Latinos. and you know the the start, sort of stark difference between what happens if your skin is brown and your skin is white when you go to prison and or when you go to trial. Mm-hmm. um when he gets to Oregon and, and this guy hears his accent. And this very sort of imperious um guy who's from portland and is sort of i don't i didn't really like that show portlandia because i thought it was too easy yeah the targets were too easy but there's obviously some kernel of truth to any kind of broad satirical take on a place but i mean this guy just is like oh you're from the south therefore you're a racist Mm. therefore you're bigot and you know and you're backwards and Earl is like, no, that's actually not the case, and you know, I and he points out, I'm I'm pretty sure that they're racist in Oregon, and he doesn't really know anything about you know, Eastern Oregon and the parts of Oregon that aren't Portland and that are very different in terms of you know race and and the and the sort of white nationalists and the survivalists that are all over the West and that everyone sort of thinks all racists live in the South, and that's absolutely not true.
0: No, it's not. And I found the line to be striking when he um, was speaking of, you know, when he was younger, there used to be people of different races coming to his house, hanging out and doing this and that. And then in Oregon, um, I think he hardly saw anyone of a different race walking around on the streets. And that has certainly been my experience. And I thought that that was very interesting mm-hmm. to point out. Um. I now want to ask you, Michael, about drugs and alcohol. Uh, Earl gets into trouble, real trouble, twice in his life. Both times are moments when he um, partakes of drugs and alcohol beyond uh, the bad dirt weed that he has stolen from his brothers when he was young, as he mentions often. Um, Is there a statement here, Michael, uh, that you were making about the excessive usage of drugs and alcohol?
1: Well, no, not, I mean, I'm not like a, just say no person. I mean, I, and I'm, nor am I vehemently anti drugs. I think everything in moderation works. Mm-hmm. Earl is not, it's not possible for him. You know, for some of us, it's just not possible mm-hmm. I mean, for me. It wasn't, I'm clean and sober and have been for years, but I mean, you know, you learn the hard way and, um, also, I just feel like there's, uh, I, I was talking to a guy, a lawyer who works for, um, I think it's the Mississippi Innocent, Innocence Project, and he deals with people who have been wrongly convicted. And I said, how many of the people that you are working with committed their crimes while under the influence of drugs and alcohol? And he said, 85, 90 percent? So if there was anything I was after was, you know, the, these, and it's not, as Arthur, his lawyer says over and over, the fact that you were messed up is not a defense. No one's going to look away from that, from you and say, oh, it was, it, the guy had too much to drink. He, he didn't have any tolerance for the kinds of drugs he was doing. No one's going to give you a pass. On the other hand, would he have done that? Would he have been in that place? had he not been out of his mind on, you know, meth and Coke and pot. And um, no, Mm. no, I don't think he would have. So um, I just feel like, you know, people get themselves in real binds and often it's because they go beyond their limits. And is it their fault? I'm not saying it's their fault. I'm not saying that they're bad for, for overindulging, you know, some people can't stop. And just the way they're wired and until they learn how to do that, which is difficult, that's just the way it's gonna be for them.
0: Yeah, thank you, Michael. And that's an interesting statistic, which raises a question for me of what's going on with the other 10 to 15% of people who are uh, arrested and committing crimes or whatever. Um, But I've got to ask you, Michael, um, about the times when when Earl is um, very much under the influence of various things. Uh, what's going on with the people that Earl sees at the edge of the woods near Tom's house, these people he sees who are frozen in place?
1: Yeah, so that, I mean, that kept that keeps coming up, obviously, and it's, it's something that he focuses on, but it's, you know, I do, I wanted to leave it a little ambiguous because Earl sees things that aren't there even when he's stone-cold sober. He he has deeply, um, you know, a a very deep imaginative space that he retreats to. And um, it could be that he's just like, you know, he's coming up with sort of metaphors of how to survive in the world. So these people that are there are somehow a barrier to him, but also also something else. Mm. And um, yet he is obviously very high. When he sees these people, so there is, you know, it could be taken that he's just hallucinating, or that is, it's just a function of him having too much, um, you know, to drink and to and too too much to snort. But um, I don't know. I mean, they came up, and they're writing a book, and, and sometimes you know things come up, and you you don't want to define them, and you don't want to say is it are they there or are they not there. Mm-hmm. Um, it never really mattered to me whether he it was just a um a function of his having had too much to drink and how much and you know too much to smoke or whether he just saw things that are there
0: mm-hmm. yeah, well, um very effective image, Michael. Um, thank you. Finally, I want to ask, and listeners, again, I hope that most of you who are spoiler averse have already paused this podcast, but a final warning here. Uh, that there will be spoilers abound. Um, Michael, when Earl went to jail as a 17-year-old, it was for the murder of Tina of Adelaide, uh, which is a murder he did not commit. We know that Tom was raping Tina. She was asking him to stop. Uh, Tom bashed her head in with a lamp. as earl was watching uh, doped up on quaaludes and cocaine and meth and all kinds of who knows what um earl spent 44 years in jail for this crime which he witnessed and probably blamed himself for um later earl caves the head in of at least one kid who was trying to mug him maybe two or three these kids who were trying to steal his beer and his wallet and a phone he didn't have caved their heads in by swinging a bag that held a six pack of non-ironic PBR uh, swinging it at their heads. Um, and then he kills this other man, uh, this ex-husband of his landlord who is wreaking havoc um, on his family, psychedelic whatever damage to psychiatric, that's what I'm searching for, uh, damage to their properties. Um, otherwise, this man who has broken into um, Earl's home And then we see Earl throw all of his money that his old lawyer friend Arthur left him and himself uh, into a river. My question, Michael, before Earl throws himself into that river, what did he do that was wrong? Which is to say, if I was his lawyer, I would ask, has Earl done anything wrong besides observing a crime and committing a couple acts of self-defense?
1: OK, do you mean before he goes to prison in, in terms so, of his guilt or innocence or, or in, during the whole book?
0: I mean, during the whole book and any of the things. So he's done two things uh, or committed, I suppose, three acts that have really got him in a jam. One, um, witnessing uh, the murder of Tina, which um, he goes to jail for. But it was a murder he did not commit. And then um he does either injure or kill these kids who are mugging him. And then also this man who broke into his home. So has he done anything wrong besides committing a couple of acts of self defense and committing a crime?
1: Well, you know, I mean, the whole thing about what happens to him with Tina is that he had the opportunity. I mean, you know, everything comes back to him in bits and pieces, and so he doesn't have the memory of what happens um, totally for a while, and, you know, Mm. he keeps saying, I don't understand how memory works, because he's, you know, he's obviously piecing it together, and this is not just because he was, you know, out of his mind on drugs, it's because something really, I mean, traumatic, to to, to use a, a word that's bandied about a lot, but really traumatic happened, and so his response to it it affects his memory of what of what occurred. So, I mean, one could strongly argue, as his as his lawyer argues, that he should have gone immediately to the cops when he realized what happened, and say this is what happened, and um and that he wouldn't be as um, he wouldn't be in as much trouble. Um, but obviously, the cops need to convict someone for the murder of this woman, and um, there's blood in the trunk of his car. I hope I'm not giving too much away. We've
0: given plenty of spoiler warnings at this point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Y'all asked for it. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, they need to – I mean, you know, is he a scapegoat? I mean, he was there when it happened. He didn't do anything about it. So, you know, he probably should have done some time for that, I think. Should he have done 44 years? No, no way. And I mean, people don't even get that for murder these days. And, you know, some a lot of times people are out in 20 years for first degree murder. And so the, the other two acts of violence that, that happen, I think are done out of desperation, mm-hmm. especially the swinging the bag of beer at the kids. And uh, I think that's kind of reflexive, but you know, he's been, tr- he's been in a place for 44 years. And let me just back up a minute and say, I did not want to write about prison. Mm -hmm. very specifically left out prison. And that is because, first of all, it's been done well Mm -hmm. in other books. And second of all, even when it's done well, it's really static. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens every day, pretty much. And that kind of routine to cover it, especially 44 years would have just been tedious. And so, and also it's not something that he wants to think about. So in terms of his character you know, it doesn't make any sense to have gone through, or even, I mean, there are very little bits and pieces of it that he shares um, at times, but um, I really don't want to talk about that. But I will say that um, I had a friend read it. Um, I had several friends read it, but one was um, my good friend, at the uh, novelist and short story writer, Travis Mulhauser, mm-hmm. uh, who lives in Durham. And Travis said to me, you know, as soon as he swung that bag of beer, I knew he was not going back to prison. And he knew he was going back to prison because he had a record and because, you know, he had gotten away with at least, you know, on the surface of starting his life again, he found his people, he found a community and they really accepted him. And, and yet some of them didn't know what he, who he was and what he'd done. And the idea that people would find out who he was and what he'd done is so terrifying to him because he's finally found this connection with these people. And he's never had that in his life ever. He didn't have it with his family. He had it with, you know, these guys who were friends of his father's, but not really. So he's finally found friendship in a community and he'll do anything to preserve it. And also he does everything he can to thwart it because he doesn't know what to do. And so the, the things that, the decisions that he makes are both out of desperation they're also just out of um you know doing what he thinks is right i mean if somebody comes at you you, you know they're, and they're pushing you down and they're trying to rob you you, you straight back
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then the other guy was gonna um was gonna tell everybody everything he knew about what who earl was and that would mean that earl would lose everything that he had gotten and he would just assume not that not happen, and he would go to any lengths to make that not happen
0: yeah absolutely michael um had he not thrown himself into a river in a court of law do you think if he um had uh injured or or killed this man who had broken into his home uh do you think he would have been found guilty and sent to jail
1: yes Mm -hmm. for the rest of his life
0: yeah which wouldn't
1: be long because he's what 58 or 59 when he gets out of prison Mm-hmm. I mean, I made him yeah. roughly my age. So, you yeah. know, he's yeah. a little tiny bit older than me, but I wanted because I grew up in the early 70s, and I know the music. Mm-hmm. And also, I know what's going on now. I mean, I wanted to think what would happen if, if someone went, who was my age went away for 40 years and then came out into this world with, you know, everything that we have cell phones, computers, all this stuff that he doesn't understand what to do. So, yes, I absolutely think. He would have gone back to prison. And I think in that sense, you know, he did what he could do. Um, mm. And in and, and, and his line of thinking, it made perfect sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Michael. And thank you for writing this wonderful book, which, again, if I'm on the Pulitzer Prize committee, you're at least getting a ticket to the reception. Uh, listeners, I've been speaking with Michael Parker author of I Am the Light of This World, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Michael, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Once again, I would like to thank Michael Parker for joining me. Copies of I Am the Light of This World can be ordered at www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quail Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN in the promo code space. That's B-O-O-K-I-N to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been BOOKIN.